Welcome to Mind, Body, Spirit, Food. I'm your host, Nikki Sizemore, and in this podcast, we'll explore the rituals, traditions, and cultural influences around food and how they connect us to our minds, our bodies, our spirits, the earth, and our communities. This is a space that's dedicated to bringing more presence, ease, and joy into the process of feeding ourselves. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome to episode nine. This is such a deep and powerful episode. I speak with embodied cooking teacher Leanne Brown. Leanne's the author of Good Enough, a cookbook about developing self-compassion and authentic connection through the act of cooking, as well as Good and Cheap, a cookbook built around feeding yourself on a budget. Leanne and I met several years ago, and it's been amazing to watch how our paths have aligned as we've changed. We talk about what it means to be embodied in the kitchen and how embodiment can not only bring more ease and pleasure into cooking, but also how it can connect us to our deeper selves. We also talk about how to nourish ourselves in times of grief and loneliness. Leanne shares her own story and offers a simple but powerful practice for feeding yourself during those times of deep pain when perhaps you don't want to eat, but know you should. She shares tips for how we can become our own parent and feed ourselves with compassion. We also talk about the pleasure of presence, of being fully engaged with our senses, and how preparing food can be a way to better understand our deeper divinity. There's so much magic in this conversation, I think it will help you to gain more perspective for those times of despair, which we have all felt and which we will feel again, but also for those times of joy and connectedness. After all, we are all connected to each other and we are always supported by our deeper selves. If this work resonates with you, you can support it by rating the podcast on your podcast app by leaving a comment, or by sharing it with your friends. You can also sign up for the Mind, Body, Spirit Food newsletter, which I've linked to in the show notes, where I share weekly recipes as well as essays and tips to help you bring more ease and joy into the kitchen. All right, my friends, let's dive in. Welcome, Leanne. It's so good to see you. It's so good to have you here. It is amazing to be here. This is going to be fun. So I'm going to start with the first question that I ask all of my guests, and that is, what is your cultural upbringing and how has that influenced your relationship to food? You know, it was interesting when I saw this question because I don't have a really simple answer. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Canada. My parents are both Canadian, whatever that means. They're both white. My dad actually grew up in England. He moved to Canada when he was five years old. My mom was always there in Canada. And there's a sense of, there's not a lot of sense of connection, honestly, to sort Mm. of European ancestry, really, for either of them, I would say. In a way, I was thinking about how I was always interested in the fact that my dad was English and British. And I loved the books, like British children's books are like amazing. My dad came with like a trunk of weird old British children's books. And I would always look through that and be like fascinated by it. And we would take them out of the library. And so I always enjoyed that. So in a way, I feel like I found myself connecting to that culture through the books and through even like, as I got older, like Shakespeare and sort of all the English literature as this thing and almost this fantasy world. And I did love fantasy as well. 
And then I think about the sort of connection to food. And I think I always also got in my mind a lot of coziness and interest and excitement out of British food, but not for any reason other than the way that it was expressed in storybooks. Like mm. someone being like, oh, sticky toffee pudding is my favorite yes. thing. Be like, ooh, <laughs> what is that? Because you're like not familiar with it. It's not something that, yeah, it's not something I grew up with. I could ask my grand, my dad's mom about it and she would explain it to me, but I would not really understand. It wasn't something that she would serve. And so it was just like this luxurious sounding amazing thing. And and the same with sort of these pub foods or stews that it was always like mm-hmm. someone on a big adventure would have this like warming stew. And that sounded so beautiful and exciting mm-hmm. to me. <laughs> I totally get this. Yes, I totally get this. So it's like, I think I developed this sort of fantasy about that kind of warmth and family and sort of luxury out of really my imaginative experience, much more so than my lived experience. Mm. My parents didn't really share a lot of culture with me. We grew up actually very highly religious in this quite problematic Christian church environment, which they eventually left when I was about nine or 10. But Mm. that was sort of the environment. And yeah, I would say really kind of devoid of a culture that I could really hang on to is something that it was all rules and Mm. structure and very confusing for me as a child. A lot of like, God loves you, but also you're going straight to hell. It was just Mm -hmm. very hard to understand. And so I'd say that, I mean, that was obviously a really huge influence in my early life. And then when it went away, there really wasn't anything that replaced it which was also Mm. quite challenging from a different sort of side. You know, it's interesting because I've thought about this a little bit about how that dogma does influence how we see ourselves and how we see our bodies and therefore how we see food. Have you found that for yourself? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's such a deep question. I almost don't even know where to begin. Yeah. Yeah, the way that rules, I mean, I think I developed my sense of self based on wandering around in this weird church environment, I was often sort of left to my own devices trying to just understand what everyone was saying. I was exposed to a lot of information that was probably not remotely (laughs) age appropriate. Mm. Mm. (laughs) And so just constantly trying to understand. And I, I always, from such a young age, and I still have this, and in fact, it's something that I love about myself and that I've learned to just be like, this is actually a special and wonderful quality about me. But I do have a sense of what is sort of right and I think what is fair. And I was always real. it was just so confusing going around listening to all these grown-ups saying sort of what is right and feeling like it was wrong, mm. but then also trying to make sense of these are the people who I'm supposed to trust or I'm trying to trust them, but at something inside me is saying that I don't. So learning... I would say in my adult life, the greatest and most beautiful healing experience I've had is learning to heal with myself in that way, to actually trust that part that I learned to quiet down at that early age in order to be safe and sort of do the right thing, at least appear to be following the rules, even if inside I was going, I don't like this. How do I protect who needs to be protected? Or how do I kind of rebel at least internally against it? And so I think Yes, learning to actually listen to myself and know that I can be who I want to be. I can 
believe what I want to believe and that that can be safe in the world has been mm-hmm. a massive, massive you shift. Know, I love this because it ties into my next question so beautifully because really what you were feeling as a child was this sense of embodiment embodiment. You were feeling something, that intuition in your body. And my next question was about the work you do now. And you're a successful cookbook author, and now you're teaching embodied cooking classes. And I would just love for you to explain what that is. Sure. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's such an early, I'm in sort of early development of it, because for me, it's the way that I've always cooked. Mm -hmm. And I finally come to understand it and really realize and it's also always how I've even written both my books are very much about I'm much more a teacher than I am like an instructor Mm. in terms of the Mm -hmm. the style of writing I want things to be and I always try to have that line of making things really accessible and simple and clear so the instruction is clear and yet at the same time I want the information to be empowering so that you can make it your own in your own life I really don't care for me personally at all, anyone simply remaking something that I've made. To me, there's no life in that. What I want to do is instill a sense of, yeah, really empowerment and life and your life, like that what you in your body can have. Eating, the experience of creating food, the experience of sharing food, all of that is meant to be just for you. Mm-hmm. you in your specific life. That is what I believe like with every ounce of myself. And that's what I've always tried to express. And I've always expressed it through, you know, having a lot of expression of alternatives for different foods that you can substitute and always encouraging people to make it their own. And some people really get that. And some people, there's a bit of a disconnect and an uncertainty and a discomfort with following themselves or sort of, I don't know what to do. Just tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. And I think within that is a beautiful space for healing. I really think that's in most people, the fear of going there of, oh, I need to be told what to do is something as is not being able to trust the self and not being able to be embodied, which is, I think, just such an incredibly common wound in our culture and, you know, anxiety. And I say that very, very broadly, you know, whether it's something you've been diagnosed with or just the experience of stimulation because of having a stressful job or having stressful experiences in the world that you're not necessarily able to release from. And so you end up with a lot of sensation in your body that you're like, oof, I don't feel great right now. And maybe you experience that for many, many people. I know, and this is a very sort of unnamed phenomenon in our culture, people carry that into the kitchen with them. And that's why so many people will say, oh, I really don't like cooking. And they'll often, and what I find fascinating, I've for many years had people come up to me and say at an event where they've come to like meet me and cook with me or something and they'll say, oh, but I'm a terrible cook. This is Mm. an experience I've had for so long is people coming up to like confess this to me. And (laughs) it is so interesting. And I'm always like, so you're a terrible cook, but here you are, you know, Mm -hmm. coming to try. So, and it's one thing, I think there are many people who aren't interested in cooking. Cooking and food is just not necessarily something that lights them up. And I think that's absolutely valid and fine. But then there are these people who are coming up to me who are a different sort, who I think deeply yeah. want this for mm-hmm. themselves, but feel that there's like sort of something wrong with them. And I think that's where this embodied practice is really a deep kind of healing of that. And I yeah. believe it's this form of healing trust with the self. And it starts with 
just learning to go, you know what, I want to put broccoli rob instead of broccoli in this. Or it's like salting things a little bit more than the recipe calls for because you tasted it and that's what you felt was right. Or adding a little bit of lemon juice to the top of something or cooking it for a little longer than it said because it doesn't seem quite done to you. And like, it sounds so funny and maybe I know I can sound dramatic saying this, but it truly, I think, I believe that for many that is a scary moment to make that type of decision. Yeah. Because then you're responsible for it. It's like if you pull it out and it's like, oh my gosh, it wasn't fully cooked. Then you go, oh, this recipe is bad. Or like, this recipe is bad. I'm a terrible cook. You confirm all the things you believe about yourself. Mm -hmm. But the moment you make a choice and you have to be responsible for that, you're on an adventure. You're going into the unknown. And suddenly you have to find out, do I know what I'm talking about? Or can I trust myself in that moment? And in that moment, you know, maybe you can learn, oh, it did work out. Or you can learn, oh, yeah, actually that was done before. Both are actually good. Yeah. But we can so over-identify with when it works out, oh, I'm good. When it doesn't work out, suddenly I'm terrible. If it doesn't work out, it's still something it's that you can learn from. It's so information. It's I always really I say that to my girls all the time. Right. It's just information. Just take it as information. Exactly. But you we're and I also have, wounded. I think our mission is exactly the same, which is so you and I are constantly pinging each other like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. We really, both of us are out here to empower people, but it does start with that self-connection. It has 100%. to start with that self-trust and with the willingness to go into the unknown. I just love how you said that. So we're going to go back to your book, Good Enough, which I love. I want you to start by just describing the book to your readers. This is a two-part question. And then I want you to talk a little bit about when you wrote this book, how your life has changed since then. <laughs> yeah. And I know it's changed a lot. So let's just put that into reference for all of our listeners. Yeah. Well, when I wrote it, I wrote it quite a few years ago. I began it not long after I'd given birth to my daughter, who just turned six yesterday. So that gives you a sense of that. It was quite a few years ago. And now I am separated. I've been separated since last summer. And I am learning to, yeah, be, it's not single parenting. It's shared parenting, of course, but it feels a lot of the time like single parenting and building a completely new life. And it's pretty different and not where Mm. I was expecting to be. And I think that's, maybe that's the, into the unknown when we begin to trust ourselves Mm, and our intuition. It can take us into these places and I have no regrets. I know this is the absolute right place for me to be. Um, And I feel so much joy and freedom, but I also feel a lot of grief and fear and anger. And that is just all, unfortunately, slash fortunately, exactly as it should be. (laughs) So Good Enough was this book very much about, it was initially a response to Good and Cheap. My first book was about empowering people who don't have a lot. It's like, why do we cook? Why do we not cook? Are sort of these two questions that are interesting to me. And with the first book, it was like, why do we not cook? Because we can't afford it or we can't quite Mm -hmm. figure it. We don't have the skills necessary to do it. Sort of all the external reasons. And I felt like I'd really tackled that, had so many great conversations, but 
the more I dug into it and had these conversations, like say these people coming up to me who are like, I'm a terrible cook. I was like, oh my gosh, so much more of the barriers to not cooking are internal. Mm -hmm. And I can really, really relate to that. And so I began to explore that so much more around the experience of cooking for ourselves and cooking for those around us as it's this form of, of love and care and devotion and creative expression. And it's all of these kinds of things. And those things are difficult to do when you don't really like yourself, when you are mm. struggling to believe that you have worth. Mm. And I've been through lots of mental health struggles over the years. I would say I still do and always will. And I know what that feels like to not like yourself and how hard that can make uh, taking care of yourself, which is fundamentally what cooking is at its, at its base. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to figure out a way to express how to move through some of those types of experiences, how to relate to yourself. And so the book, it took me several years to write because at first I thought, oh gosh, I'm writing this for other people, kind of the way that I had with Good and Cheap. I was like, it's going to be all about other people. And the more I wrote it, I was like, it has to be about me. Because yeah. <laughs> that's the only way that I can yeah. really express this is by, I think the greatest gift that we can give anyone is a really honest expression of ourselves and allow others to relate to us. I think that's yes. really the only way that we can relate, we can express these types of things. And so it became a very personal book. And it's all about, yeah, cooking and caring for yourself and those around you in different times of struggle, in good times and bad, in ups and downs, and even sort of different times of day and how they affect your body and mind and strategies and ideas and stories that I hope sort of help fundamentally, I think more than anything, just help people be seen and affirmed and named. I think that the work that we're doing, Nikki, is in defining that these issues around food, it's not necessarily like the sort of body image issues that I think are more understood, what we would call like eating disorders. This isn't about eating disorders. This is more, it's about our relationship with food and cooking and our own self-image. Yeah. It's something different. Deeper self. It is. is. And oh, often they can be related to some of these other things and people come sure. with so many, like a, all kinds of experiences. But what I found is it it can be difficult to talk about sometimes because most people don't even realize that they struggle with this. Mm-hmm. And so it's like we're, it's so below the surface. Mm-hmm. But I'd say the majority of people struggle with this kind of thing. And the more we're able to name it, I think people can come toward and go, oh gosh, that's me. Oh gosh, I experienced that. And then you have to believe that you can feel differently too. Yeah. That it's not just well, like, oh, sh- other people. This has come up in so many of my podcast episodes, but Almost in every single one of my podcast episodes, which is so beautiful, but truly the only way we can start to heal others is through healing ourselves. And within that healing, we naturally start to heal others yeah, simply it just by happens. healing ourselves. Yep. 100%. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, we must. How can we lead anyone else into the unknown if we have not been there ourselves? Mm -hmm. We do not know what it is to like stand on the brink and feel that fear. And I know, again, it can sound so dramatic, but our daily life is full of these moments that feel like that, that feel like our sense of certainty, our sense of safety is gone. And when we can learn 
how to soothe ourselves in moments like that and to take a step forward. That is like how we can grow and how we can just learn that we can have so much more than we have had before. Yeah. Food for you and I, food is this beautiful tool. Exactly. It's a tool for self-connection. And the more we can explore that, the richer our lives can be. It's this wonderful technique to have an experience of self-knowledge, which is, oh, what a joy. It is, you know, in relationship, and this is how you can sort of extend your relationship with yourself, how you can, yeah, begin to see yourself in different situations. How will I react to that? How will I react to this? You can find it out. This leads me into the topic of today's conversation is how do we nourish ourselves in times of grief and in times of loneliness? Yeah. Wow. Well, I've been, I feel like I've been taking a massive course in this over the last year or so as I've been separated and then setting up my new life and going through sort of phase after phase Mm. of, you know, grief of my marriage and the life that I thought I'd have, the uncertainty In addition, actually, my father has terminal cancer, and that has been another layer. He's still with us. It's been pretty amazing. But every day when someone is dying, Mm -hmm. there is this special preciousness and this sort of pre-grieving that you can't help but do. Mm -hmm. So I will say on a very personal level, my stomach is the space where I feel all of this. Or not my stomach, Mm -hmm. like my digestion. Like the whole area gets so... It can get tight. I certainly feel a lot of nausea, sickness in there. I would say I find it harder to eat when I am sincerely feeling grief, loneliness, deep sadness. It is very hard to eat. And I think that's a really, that's a tough place to be because we know you really have to work through so many layers of stuff when you know that the right thing to do is to feed your body because you think anyone else who was struggling, suffering, feeling these things, I would want to nourish them lovingly, you know, put a blanket over them, like feed them soup. Like, how would I do that? But to do it for yourself, it actually feels sort of unpleasant. Like, I don't like it. I'm not keeping it down. I'm not enjoying it. And so you have to, I practice for myself. I try when I'm at my best or when I'm able Mm-hmm. To almost, it's like I, this sounds bad, but it's, I think, very healthy. I almost split myself into the part of me that is struggling, the sort of mm-hmm. child and the parent. And I go, yes. I know this doesn't feel good to eat this soup right now. Your tummy does hurt, but you need this in your body. But of course, I'm all one person, so I have to take myself to make the thing, even though I feel bad, and then <laughs> eat the thing that I don't really want to eat. And Yet it's still this back and forth relationship where we'll go, okay, have a couple sips of it, see how we do, see how Mm. it feels. Because the other thing about that tummy issue is what I'm feeling is emotion in there and it covers up the hunger feelings. And so that can be difficult. So you could have your food trusting the reality is I'm a human being with a body. I need to eat two to three times a day. I'm going to trust and believe in that, even though it feels so yucky and hard right now. I'm going to eat this. And then I'm going to notice, do I feel a little bit better? Like emotion is still there. Those feelings of Mm -hmm. sickness, those feelings of, oh, I couldn't possibly eat anything are still there. But I have eaten, which is necessary and underneath all of that. 
Hi there. I just wanted to pop in really quickly and let you know that an easy way that you can support this work is to sign up for the Mind, Body, Spirit Food newsletter. In the weekly newsletter, you'll get brand new recipes each week, along with my thoughts, ideas, and practical tips for how to bring more ease and joy and freedom into the kitchen. The newsletter is free, although if you become a paid subscriber for just a couple bucks a month, you'll have access to the full recipe archive, along with Q&As, weekly threads, and other fun perks. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You can share the newsletter with your friends or even give a gift subscription. I've popped a link into the show notes where you can sign up. Thank you all for listening. And now back to the show. Gosh, I feel like this is such a beautiful practice of parenting yourself. I often talk to my body. I love talking like, oh, honey, (laughs) oh, honey. But I love this idea when our emotions are so strong and they can cover up that nervous system can really mask some of the physiological needs 100% of our bodies to go and into parent it mode. Often for reasons of safety when you were younger. Like I, yeah. I've only a little bit touched on it, but there were not always grown-ups around to help me. I had to figure out how to do so many things on my own as a child. And I learned how to put my needs aside so that I could look after the other people around them to keep myself safe. And so my body is very, very skilled at masking my needs up until the point where, you know, maybe I'm having a giant headache or like something that really, really, really gets through. And I'd say my early adult life was absolutely, you know, I got migraines, I would get sick all the time, all kinds of ways that I didn't take care of myself because I didn't know how to listen. I had no Mm -hmm. idea how to listen to my body because it had at so early in age gotten so brilliantly skilled at hiding all of that stuff because there was no one safe to help me with it. And so what I've had to do is learn to embody that part. I didn't have parents who were attentive and available for me. And so I've had to learn how to become that person and take care of this other side as well and just learn to listen. So it's like developing the parent side, listening Mm -hmm. to the child side, and then developing a trusting relationship between the two is like where the magic happened. That's and the magic. And it's challenging. And I would say even for those of us who have had a great childhood or had healthy parents, we still need to reparent ourselves. Oh, and absolutely. we still need to learn how to listen. Like all of this applies no matter what kind of childhood you had. It because really we all does. embody traumas, whether they're tiny or whether they're huge, we, we embody them mm-hmm. in our system. We do. Well, and also just the way we grew up in school, like thinking about the way we learn, it's all about evaluation and judgment. It's Mm -hmm. right or wrong. And then people bring that to cooking and feeding and caring for themselves. There's a right or wrong way, but there is no right or wrong way. There's Mm. only your way. And so even the way I try to teach cooking is really like there is no, there's techniques and there's, you know, there's basic things. But at the same time, there is no right or wrong way. And there's going to be no grade at the end of this. There's going to be no pass fail. We are not a restaurant. We are not a paying public. Like all that matters is nourishing ourselves. And the bar is actually like really quite low for that. It's letting go of this perfectionism, this rampant perfectionism. And that gets so instilled in us through our schooling system and work life and all of this. And it doesn't 
often doesn't have anything to do with our parents or where we came from. But it's just, this is how you get through the world. This is how you get success. This is how mm-hmm. you can do well. And we have experience after experience after experience where pushing ourselves, you know, past our limit, not eating all night in order to get, or whatever it is to get something done, pushing our body's needs down to achieve some external goal is so normalized that then to actually go back in and start to listen to our body and think of that as more important than the goal we're trying to achieve is so countercultural and can also feel incredibly frightening. Like, but I'm going to lose the goal. Like that's more important to my safety. Mm -hmm. This changing of reorienting to does the work goal matter as much as me being okay? Yeah. Like it's wild that we really, most of us I think would say, oh, the work goal for sure. Yeah. But really like this is our one life on planet earth. This is our one little life. This is our sacred, beautiful body that we get to be in connection with and live within and to hurt this body that all they ever tried to do for us is give us everything. Mm-hmm. To ignore that is, oof, I think that's the real wrong that we do all the time. And it's when we ignore that. And I try to practice that, but gosh, I am, it's a real work in progress. I'm constantly like, it's oh, a practice. It again. I mean, the same, yep. the same, it's a practice. There's so much power when we're in our body. Yes. We need to be in our body. And when we are fully connected, we have access to all of this information that is not accessible through our mind alone. And we live in a world where it is very hard to get out of that conditioning. And so it's a constant practice. And this brings us right back to the kitchen because cooking, just the simple act of nourishing ourselves can be a way to get there. It's proof. At least it's one like, little way Here to you get go, there. body. I love you. And I know you're the same, Nikki. And the way that I teach the embodied practice, it's like we let go of the outcome of whatever we're doing. We just trust (laughs) that it's going to be fine, Mm -hmm. even if it's Mm -hmm. not, even if it is blackened or something unfortunate happens. And we enjoy or we try to enjoy the process. We also don't have to enjoy it, but we allow our senses to take over. And I think that's how we embody. And so I am constantly encouraging and noting all the ways in which we can smell, we can taste, we can see, we can feel, we can listen. Yes. And all of the information that we have and what we notice when we are just in with our senses, there is natural pleasure in that. Yes. Just no matter what, you're yep. a human being. We like the feel of wetness on our hands. Or even if we yeah. don't like it, we're like, oh, that's interesting. Huh, what does that make me think of? I mean, I find when I do this, it just gets so rich. I think about plunging my hands like into bags of rice as a child mm, and I'm like yeah why not do that now I can do that why not I right. can do that when I'm making rice every single time if I want to I can listen to the little click 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 of the rice pieces snicking together as I like bring them down I, I can hear the bubbling of the water and the way that the bubbling of the water changes as the boiling happens and what does that actually make my body feel like? It's like the symphony of progress. And when you can feel when the bubbling becomes like too violent and to turn it down, we can listen. Our body, our senses know how to do that. All it's of those things. full body presence. And, you know, I've written about play. So there's like two aspects to this. It's like, you know, when you watch children play, they're just completely fully embodied with all of their senses. And then there's also this spiritual component. When we are fully present, 
it's like time and matter cease to exist. We're in that magic state. Mm -hmm. And we're just responding. We're not doing, we're responding. And there's something so fun. That's the creative process, I believe, that you're describing, basically. It's like, that is this magic that happens when we are just there. And whatever is meant to come through, our beautiful instrument just comes through. Mm. And that's why I also think this is such a powerful, if you do want to become like a better cook, it is also such a powerful practice because when we are totally embodied, you can't make bad food. You can't. It's not possible. (laughs) It's true. Because we are built to do this. We invented this. It is in our DNA. We have been doing this for literally millions of years. We came up with this. Who are you to think that you're any different than all of your ancestors who fucking invented this. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> it's so beautiful. You can't help it. Your body knows exactly what to do. And if you can listen to it, you will be able to create something that pleases you in just the way. And not just through, you know, the taste, which is what we're also so focused on the taste, but it's the whole experience. How do you feel afterwards? How does it feel going down your throat How does it feel as it warms through your esophagus? How does it make you feel light? How does it feel as you are digesting it? All of this information is actually possible to feel, but we are not connected with it. And that's after. I mean, and then obviously I really like to focus on up to the decisions that we're making, all the sensory experience of creating it, then eat it. There's just nonstop pleasure sort of playground, as you say, for the eating mm, pleasure playground. I'm going to, I like that one. I'm writing that one down. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to circle back because this is the conundrum. There is so much pleasure. And the truth is when we are feeling lonely, lonely, when we don't feeling access it sad, 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 there likely isn't the pleasure aspect. Nope. So it's almost like, yes, food is connection. Food can connect us to ourselves you noted that food can be a way for us to reparent ourselves. Is there anything else? Is there anything else that you've noticed about this relationship with grief and loneliness and the kitchen? Yes. I mean, I could be rhapsodized about these experiences forever, but definitely there are times where I'm not connected with them. I guess what I will say, and it's sort of like that frustrating thing where what will make you feel better? A deep breath. It's really that simple. And yet at the same time, within that is such tremendous complexity. How do we actually allow the breath to be received in ourselves? Can we notice? Can we bring our awareness to, when I'm breathing, I am alive. And when I'm alive, I naturally feel good. So when I go to make some food for myself, even in like the depths of despair and loneliness and sadness, when I can be with just exactly what I'm doing and breathing is so important. Like, I mean, it's all about like breathing with every breath, you know, chopping something or Mm. putting butter across toast or whatever simple thing you're doing and just noticing With an open, I think this is the hardest part. And I think why it is so hard to receive the breath, we have to actually be open to it getting better. 
And I know yes. I'm actually like going to cry saying this because it's so real and so much an experience that I have lately. It's that with loneliness and grief, we don't want it to shift mm. because grief means we're losing something. Yeah. And grief mm. can only transform because it's really love lost, you know, and so it can transform and then we can remember what the person or the experience with a sort of different energy, a different gaze over time we process, but we have to process that pain. And so the reason we sometimes can't receive the breath and we can't receive these good feelings is because we actually want to hang on to these painful states because we want to hang on to the person or the experience or this belief mm -hmm. about ourselves. You know, I am a lonely person. I have done something wrong. I deserve to be feeling what I'm feeling. I miss that person. I don't want to stop thinking about them. Mm -hmm. And so it can actually be hard, really hard to receive that breath and I think in the same way, it can be hard to receive your own care and love. It's like the moment when with a child and we're the same way as adults, when your child looks over at you, you can see that they're upset and they have something in their eyes, but they can't let it go until you hug them and then their body and then just they let it go. Let it go. Yeah. That is hard to do as an adult to really be able yeah. to let it go, let it out. It's scary. You need to know that someone really has got you. And when we're grownups, we have to do that for ourselves and we can do yes. that through the breath. Some of us, maybe we can do it with a friend or someone we have a really trusted relationship with. But it is so difficult to fully, fully let go when we're talking about something that's as big a feeling as grief or like yeah. really putrid, old, scary loneliness. That stuff, that's trauma. Like loneliness yeah. from childhood, loneliness, that feeling of I am alone is a lie. None of us are ever alone. We're all interconnected. Mm. And so it's this horrible twisted lie that we've experienced somehow as trauma and it is so difficult to be with that within yourself but you have to be with it a little bit in order to let it go and so that yeah so that is really yeah. hard that is so insightful it's exactly that whenever I am in a time of deep grief it's a two-pronged thing it's like I'm grieving what I no longer have and I'm also grieving what I don't understand. I'm also grieving what and the I future don't know without is coming. This. Yeah. That fear and of like, I don't have that anymore. There is this sense of how could I ever be happy again without this? Like that seems wrong. And, and there's a loss there. of identity. No matter where the grief is stemming from, yes. grief always connotes this loss of identity. It's like some part of us is being peeled away and we want to hold on at least in my body, it feels like constriction. Oh, I just want to hold on. I totally on. feel that. So tight. And I think that's why it takes such tremendous courage, such tremendous courage to move through that. And it is this in, it's the into the unknown thing again. That's what it is. To believe that it's okay to be okay again, that we can lose a part of our identity. Let's say, use me as an example, this, you know, when my dad is gone, I'm not a daughter of my dad anymore. Is that what that means? Mm -hmm. It's like, of course not. But like, maybe that is what that feeling is. It's that yeah. loss of that particular identity of being this person's daughter. If I'm not that, what can I be? How can I be? Is it okay? 
what will that look like? I have no idea. And that can be so, it, I think it's primarily frightening as well. Yes. And it's also our work, you know, as, as I see my own human evolution, a large part of my work in this past two years has just been releasing all of these identities and sitting yeah, in that Yeah, that's the weird thing. It actually feels great trust. releasing. <laughs> <laughs> it sucks sometimes. <laughs> but when we can connect to that deeper part that does not change, and this is, this is getting very spiritual, but I think that we, you know, I love this. I love that. This is, this is how we learn to nourish ourselves can take us really deep. <laughs> so deep. So deep. Yes. Who are we under all the, And I think that is, that is that question that we're feeling when we cannot receive the breath, when we cannot receive the nourishment. It is, I can't exist without this. And then when we're able to get to the point we do exist, oh, I've been, I feel tingly when I talk about it because it's like, there is this connection with whatever that is, whatever is the essential us, this vibration, this aliveness, mm-hmm. it's there. And it is so soothing to be in connection with that, that part that is always there, that spiritual, I am just this, I am alive. Are there any foods that connect you to that deeper part of yourself? You know, and I know this this feels like a cheat. I don't think specific foods, but I think the process of cooking, when I just allow myself to cook with whatever I have around, just allow myself to have no plan and open up the fridge, grab a few things and follow my intuition. Mm, it's my favorite. I feel so connected mm. to that. Yes. Yeah. And even if I'm able to have the privilege of shopping in that way, like grocery shopping in that way, where I'm just sort of like, oh, grab some vegetables, grab some, like just get some stuff that I'm drawn to and trust myself to be able to create something, which I, I mean, at this point, I think with our careers being the way that they are, I don't worry. That's not hard for me. I know that that may be more difficult for many people who are new to it, but that's not difficult. But yeah, the experience of just going, I am in the flow of creativity with food. I am listening to what my body is telling me. And I'm creating something in communion with like the earth. Like it just, it gets deep so fast. I mean, it's unbelievable the riches that I think, you know, fruits, I mean, I would say most fruits and vegetables, probably number one thing that really make me feel so connected because they are the bounty of the earth. You yeah. feel it, you smell it. There's so much nuance. I mean, a piece of fruit, like the complexity of the aroma alone, so unbelievable. And the way that it changes as it ripens, what it's like on the outside versus the inside, if it's something that has a peel or a pit, like there's just so much to it. And then the way that we can prepare it, it's like a kind of worship of the earth and it's the worship of our own divinity because that's really what we're saying when we talk about this part of ourselves that's always there it is the part of us that is everything mm-hmm. that is connected to absolutely everything and that can feel I often think about like being sort of outside under the sun and like hearing the birds and the, the wind in the trees and it all just feels like I so belong here mm. I meant you know I belong here because I am in connection with everything. And I feel that so much when I'm cooking and especially with fruits and vegetables and preparing them and just allow it to be 
Yeah, I don't think I've ever really defined that, but it does, it feels like the creative process becomes like a form of worship for the earth, for being here. Yeah, it's really, as I think about it for myself, it's really about the intention, isn't it? You know, I just think about, I start every morning with hot lemon water because it feels so good, but it also feels like life. (laughs) It feels like life in my mug and I drink it very consciously because I drink it during my meditation time and it's part of my little ritual. But it is like, what are those moments, not necessarily foods, but those processes or perhaps foods that make us feel alive and make us feel connected to everything? Yeah. Well, and just, there's almost this silliness about it because it's like, we're always connected. We're always, it's like, it's like, make us feel what? The truth? Like it's the reality that's always there. Right. And what's amazing is that we've developed this ability to be disconnected from it. You know, we all have that so much. And so anything that can get us back into the truth, it's like, this is just, this is really who we are. This is who mm. we are, are meant to be. And it's always there underneath. And I think the more you visit that part of yourself, the more you can be there, the more good things happen, the more you know yourself, the more you are guided onto kind of the path that you're supposed to be on. And the more you can see that these times that are hard and painful, they will pass. They will pass. That there is a cyclical nature to this life. And there's so much information that's available. And I know that there are times when I do not like to hear that message, but it's really, really true that in these moments of grief and loneliness and sadness and rage, all of that is if we can allow it to pass through us, if we can find whatever our version of falling into our parents' arms and like really releasing, letting go, allowing someone else to help us with it, knowing that we are all connected and therefore everyone is always helping us with it, um, then we can get so much information. You know, how many times have, I know for me, it's like if I just let myself just sob and sob about something, like an hour later, I'll be like, oh, I was upset about that thing and that thing and that thing because it reminded me of this. Like it just yeah. it makes so much sense all of a sudden. It is how we process. I think emotion is spiritual communication. You know, we're taught to analyze our emotions as they're happening. But I don't think it works that way. You just have to feel them. You feel your emotions and afterwards. Yeah. You don't even have to analyze them. The information will just come to you. Yeah. And so I find like for me, that's one of my stuck points is I notice when I'm getting, I'm trying to just figure out what's going on. Yeah. And I get Mm. very like, oh, and I have to do this and this and this. And it's like, you don't have to do anything but feel it. I just always try to remind myself, slow down and just allow it. Slowing down is my biggest weapon and also my thing I have the hardest time with. I'm right with you. I have had to cultivate stillness. My husband is like a still person. Yes, this is something I have to I, continually Beautiful. There's like calm blue water people. <laughs> They're wonderful. I, Leanne, I could talk to you all day and we have to wrap it up, but I can't wait to have you back because this conversation has been so deep and so much more spacious and expansive than I could have imagined. And I'm so grateful for you opening up and by you opening up, allowing us all to go deep with you. I have one last question and it has nothing to do with the conversation. It's just a fun (laughs) one. And that is, it is your last meal on earth. What would it be? After we just talked, I think I would say like just a basket of super ripe, perfect fruits and vegetables, just like covered in 
dew drops fresh mm. from the garden. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, where can our listeners find you and where can they find your books? Well, my website is just www.leannebrown.com and you can find my books, Good Enough and Good and Cheap, anywhere books are sold. I'd love for you to sign up for my newsletter. I have a few offerings on the site and Instagram and all that stuff. But yeah, reach out to me if there's anything you're interested in or in particular, if this feeling of sort of anxiety in the kitchen is something you struggle with, I would love to work with you. Working with people one-on-one is, I think, what I'm best at in life. And I love it, that connection and to sort of help hold your hand as we go into the unknown a little bit together. I think that is the most beautiful thing that I ever get to do. So. Well, thank you for your beautiful work. And until next time, I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If this work resonates with you in any way, you can support it by leaving a review or comment or sharing it with friends. Also, you can sign up for the newsletter, Mind, Body, Spirit, Food, And by becoming a paid member for just $5 a month, you help fund this entire project. Thank you so much to all of you who are already subscribed, especially to those paid subscribers. This work could not happen without you. I'm Nikki Sizemore. And as always, remember to nourish yourself with intention and love.